Beauties, I wanted to let you know what to expect from this week's show. We have a fantastic novelist who's coming on to join us, but I wanted to share that we will be talking about non-consensual sexual encounters and sexual violence, among other things. I wanted to put this on your screen so you know what to expect. Now, on to the show. Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. If you've been listening to A Certain Age for any length of time, you might have heard me mention that my mom is a librarian and my dad is a book-buying junkie. My childhood living room was lined with bookshelves arranged by the Dewey Decimal System. I am serious. I think we can all agree that that is totally extra. But as a lifelong reader and lover of books, I do believe that one of life's greatest pleasures is cracking open a book, diving into its pages, and getting swept along in a story that pulls you into a vivid, singular world. And when you get to talk to that book's author, heaven. I am so thrilled to be sitting down today with Daisy Alpert Florin, the author of the novel My Last Innocent Year, which was a New York Times book review's editor choice. Reviewers called My Last Innocent Year propulsive, evocative, and very hot, and a tightrope walk of a debut novel about womanhood, power, and privilege. I tore through this dazzling book, and I am so excited for this conversation. Welcome, Daisy. Well, thank you, Katie. Pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm, I actually just finished your book last night, I'm going to admit, but I could not put it down. I so enjoyed it. Um, it's a coming-of-age story, right? It explores universal themes, the incandescence and uncertainty of youth. You cover identity, desire, sex, power. Uh, but I know that the genesis of the story, uh, what you and many other writers often refer to as, quote, an inciting incident, is rooted in a personal experience. And I'm wondering, as a jumping off point, if you could share with our listeners, what made you decide to write My Last Innocent Year? Oh, yes. Um, Thanks for asking. Um, I have been working on this novel for a very long time. Um, It grew out of personal essays that I had been writing um, for several years, many of which just coincidentally took place were stories that took place during my college years. Um, I just turned 50. College was a while ago, but um, I found myself going back to that time and I was writing about those years in personal essays. Um, And after I wrote a series of essays, I sort of felt like I had more to say about college and the 90s and coming of age, especially as a woman um, in patriarchy, in academia, and how you find your voice. Um, And I wanted to say more, and I wanted to write on a bigger, I wanted to paint on a bigger canvas, essentially. Um, But there, um, I did write an essay um, after the book came out that sort of hinted, talked about the way that um, one specific incident sort of sparked the novel for me. And I should say that the novel is not autobiographical. It does draw from emotions and feelings um, you know, that I had that I was still sort of grappling with. But to be honest, if I wrote a novel or a memoir about what I actually did in college, it would be pretty boring. Um, It was a lot of me like watching people and looking at people and talking to people. But um, some of the more propulsive plot points of the book are not things that happened to me. But um, um, the the opening scene sort of um, it takes place with the the main character Isabel Rosen, who's a senior at this fictional Wilder College, 
which is modeled on my alma mater, Dartmouth. Um, she has a sexual encounter with a friend or someone she thought was a friend that um, she isn't sure when it's over if it was consensual or not. And that kind of um, is a jumping off point for for the book, which does, as you say, deal with questions of, you know, you know, with sex and power and consent and all these kind of murky, thorny things that we go through, um, you know, in our in our college years. Um, and the, that scene isn't, uh, you know, isn't a replica of something that happened to me, but it's sort of based on a, a similar encounter that I had. Um, the circumstances were different, um, the players were different, but where I also had trouble um, putting a name to what had happened. It was something that I felt bad about and felt bad about for a really long time, but I wasn't really sure what to call it. And actually I had tried for years as I was writing these personal essays that I was talking about to kind of write about that experience and capture that experience. And I never could get it quite right. It was one of like the great frustrations of my life. I probably tried for a decade to tell that story. Um, because so much had been lost to memory, so much was murky to me, um, and I just couldn't really put it down on paper. So I kind of decided to fictionalize it. Like, let's just write about the feelings are the feelings, but all of the particulars of that opening scene are invented. And once I was able to do that, um, the rest, you know, that that's, I, I won't say the rest of the novel just came together. Because <laughs> really, this mean, is such a beautifully constructed and fascinating novel. I, I doubt it just sort of flew together. But it's it's so interesting that, you know, you, you said you spent a decade trying to um, articulate or sort of wrap your arms around it and sort of share the story that you had personally. In the book, when we meet Isabel Rosen, she she's grappling also with this uh this sort of confusion, you know, was the sexual encounter that she had with Zev, her, you know, her friend or erstwhile friend, was it coerced, was it consensual? And throughout the book, we see her returning to this experience and still not quite understanding or, or being able to fully define or name it. You know, so much of the theme of this book is about a woman finding her voice. Um, you know, when Isabel is struggling, uh, I don't want to give too much of the book away because I want everyone to read it, but her roommate, Deborah, when she comes back, kind of jumps in and, and, names this this act as 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 a rape right these words are put in isabel's mouth they're kind of almost planted in her mind and they shape not only how she sees the story but the story that you tell throughout the book um my my last innocent year you know yeah. do you think that isabel grows in this story and is able to see herself more clearly and see like the agency that she has in her life was that was her constant struggle a mechanism that you made deliberately, or was it simply because it is so hard sometimes to un unpeel these sort of gray areas? Yes, I mean that's a fantastic. I love the way you asked that. Um, I was really interested in the gray areas, as you say, and I, I definitely do hear from readers who feel frustrated by that, who feel frustrated by you know by the way, Isabel isn't able to name exactly what happened to her. Um, but then I hear from readers who say, yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. That That's exactly, you know, how, how that experience um, unfolds for, for me, for so many, for so many people. Um, I, I think that the reason I, I ended up having success telling the story in fiction is because 
when I write essay and I do still write essays, um, I always feel the need to arc to meaning. You know, I have to sort of come to a conclusion or sort of stake my claim on one side of the of the question. Um, and in fiction, in this novel, I really was able to just stay in those gray, gray areas. Um, and that felt really good to me. I think I live in gray areas. Um, I, I, I think it makes me a good novelist or a good writer, but if, if I am a good novelist or a good writer, but it's- uh, You are both of those things. Book. As I said, I just oh, finished this book. <laughs> I want everyone to, to hit add to cart instantly because oh. it's it's mesmerizing. I, I, I thought this was a phenomenal read. Um, but it, thank you so much. Um, I, you know, I think it can be a hard way to live. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I could do it this way, or I could also do it that way, or I think I feel this way, but I can also see that side of it. And um, so like like um, Isabel's friend, Deborah, who has a very strong opinion on what has happened that night between Isabel and Zev, and, you know, just sort of gives it this bold label of rape. Um, I, I too have friends who I turn to in my life who I say, you know, just tell me what to do, or can you just tell me what to do? And and there, I have friends who are happy to take that role, and I am happy to have them. But, um, but I think that it's it's very much about, um, it's certainly about finding her voice. And as she's coming of age as a writer, um, th those were things I, I wanted to explore. How, how you know, because what happens after this scene that we've talked about is she um, has a, uh, you know, she has a professor, and I don't think it's giving too much away to say she um, falls into a love affair with this married professor. Um, and I also wanted to talk about, you know, mentors, and specifically bad mentors, and how um, I think women in particular can be derailed by bad mentors. That's so interesting. We are heading into a quick break. When we come back, Daisy, I want to pick this up. Daisy, we're back from the break. When we headed into it, you you let our listeners know that Isabel winds up falling into a uh, consensual, clearly consensual relationship with a married professor. Um, it, it's it's clear because he makes her spell it out. It's sort of a very gripping scene in the book. Um, it, it's it's super uh, you know sexually charged, and it's it's. I thought it was it was uh, so interesting, given that earlier in the book she had struggled to kind of name what was happening to her, and here she sort of walked through this this naming, this sort of claiming by her professor. But the the, the book um, we watch Isabel sort of gain and regain and lose her voice. And there's that theme of silence that we talked about, but there's also a close relative that um, emerges as a theme, and that's secrecy, right? This sort of repeating element in the book, characters are hiding affairs, the nature of relationships, even behaviors and actions that characters that are taken that require exposure, really. I don't want to give too much away. So th the book really asks Isabel to re-examine all these different experiences that are shaping her. And the character Isabel does this in real time, right? She is looking and examining things that are happening to her in college. She also does it with a little bit of distance because the book does toggle back and forth between her college and adult years. You wrote this book with a time and distance of age and experience and maturity. Uh, I, I sometimes ask this question at the end of the show, but I want to ask it now. Could you have written this book when you were younger or did it take getting to midlife? I mean, absolutely, it took getting to midlife, um, 100%. Um, I wrote this book in the fever that was my 40s. Um, you know, I 
it took me that long to kind of figure out that I indeed wanted to be a writer, that it was something that I possibly could do. Um, you know, I had spent a decade raising kids and I just felt like the time I was ready to sort of look back on, on who I was and how I had gotten where to where I am. So a lot of that came out in, in the essays. That was a lot of what I was grappling with in those essays. Um, and, and you're right, the book, it, it's Isabel is looking back on the experience of her, you know, this final semester of her, of college. Um, but you can always tell throughout the book that she's looking back at it from a distance of, let's say, 20 years. I'm not really specific, or I guess I am, but Anyway, I won't give that away. It's about 20 years. Um, and that is what I was doing also. And and there was no way that I could have told this story without having that layer of the kind of wisdom that you that you gain when you're in your 40s. Um, you know, I was I did start writing the book in 2015, which was before um Me Too and and the Trump years and and all the things that went on culturally that caused women to look back at experiences and to speak up about experiences. So I was already working on the book when all of those things started to happen in the culture. And that certainly lent an urgency to the writing. I sometimes think would I have been able to finish the book if the, if, you know, if the world wasn't sort of intruding on it and every day I woke up and there was something else that people were talking about and that I wanted to layer into the book. Um, but I was already doing that work. I was already thinking about, um, what had happened to me and how I saw it differently now with the, with, you know, with the benefit of, of distance. Um, and then we just all started doing it collectively. And that definitely helped. You see um, that you see that in the book, though, because you, you did share at the opening of the show that the book was kind of rooted in the 90s, you know, around the time that you went to college, that you were at Dartmouth. We, we see a lot of like 90s references, music, you know, um, Lilith Fair. There's a whole bunch of of things that that will um, will be fun for anyone who who grew up in the '90s or went through it to experience. Uh, you also talk about Monica Lewinsky a little bit in the book. She's alluded to as a you know as a person who's part of a news story. Was she always in the book, or did you put her in when these things were popping up with the Me Too movement? Did you want to go back deliberately, or had she already been in there? That's such a good question. Um, I I actually graduated from college in 1995. So when I started writing the book, I knew it would be in the 90s. That was just what I was going to write about. Um, it's what I was interested in and also what I'm able to do. I wouldn't be able to write a novel, you know, set in a college today. I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> Me neither. It out. I have two call. I have two college students, and I have no idea. It's like so no like, idea. <laughs> but so, and I wanted to go back to the '90s. I wanted to like sort of bring that experience, you know, back to life. Um, but so I think I was writing sort of vaguely in the '90s, maybe 1995, you know, because that was when I graduated. Um, and what happens is you write for a while before you figure out before you start to like really zero in on what you actually want to say. Um, so after I'd been writing for a while, I thought, well, it'd be, I'm kind of interested, I'm interested in culture. I'm interested in, you know, in how literature and politics and history sort of talk to each other. So I thought, what could I layer in that like everyone would be talking about in 1995? And, and, you know, in that case, it was really the OJ Simpson trial was the case, the trial was really what people were talking about at that time. And I thought, well, could that be sort of the backdrop? And that wasn't, didn't feel like the right backdrop. Um, so then I, you know, 
was like, uh, duh, you know, Monica Lewinsky and, and Bill Clinton. So I just, I ended up moving it ahead three years. So the, the novel takes place in 1998 when I was already out of college. But um, it was really fascinating to go back to that time because, um, you know, I was out of college when that was going on. I'm the same age as Monica Lewinsky. I was definitely aware of it, but like to look back on it and to really sort of dig into it um, as sort of a project, um, was really interesting. Um, we've definitely come, you know, around on how we see that whole experience. Um, sure. Her public persona has been transformed. You know, she, I mean, she is, um, she's done an incredible job of sort of reinventing herself and, and staying true to herself. Um, and, and, you know, calling out the fact that she was made a national punchline and, and, and sort of a joke. And she's really um, kind of, I, I don't know, transmuted or transformed her story in, in such a powerful way. I, 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 you know, I admire the way she's, she's handled herself after being um, in such a difficult public position. And one of the characters in the book basically sort of calls that out and, you know, recognizes that, that she was, put in an incredibly difficult position at a very young age. Um, you know, I, I yeah. want to ask you, Daisy, um, you mentioned that you spent a, a good chunk of your four days writing essays, kind of struggling with, um, you know, the uh, looking back identity, trying to put your arms around, you know, what it is that you wanted to be sharing and telling. I, I think we see some of this struggle uh, in Isabel, right? When she lands at college, she 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 struggles with her identity. Um, she's othered to a degree in her small, um, you know, homogenic. Am I even saying that word correctly? Homogeneous. Yeah. Homo homogeneous. Homogeneous. Yeah. I'm like, oh my god. It, I, I'm recording this at the end of a day on Friday, and I've had a busy Friday week, afternoon. so my brain is like, how do you pronounce that word? That's also my midlife brain fog. But in any event, she's she's othered, right? She is um, of a of a smaller religion. She's got a lower economic status than her peers. Her home life is something that sort of separates her out from her peers, who are really largely insulated by wealth and status. And at one point in the book, uh, her the the other character who was you know the friend that she was involved with the this the sexual uh you know Zeb. moment yeah. with Zev confronts her and asks you know do you really think I raped you and we watch Isabel have the experience of not being able to easily answer that question even to herself in her own mind and she says and I wrote it down you know, quote my belief system was fuzzy even when it came to my own body and then she goes on to say, sometimes it seems like Zev was the only person here who saw me, who really saw me, and maybe I'd let him fuck me to thank him for that. And that sentence jumped out at me because it rang so true. Not, not the specific circumstances, of course, because that has not happened to me, but the sort of sense of, of standing and sort of being detached from your, yourself, deciding who and how to be in a particular circumstance. You know, I... I remember being a young woman at, you know, work and like letting people say things maybe they shouldn't say. I remember being at parties. You know, I think that I, th I think it'd be very hard to find a woman who hasn't tolerated some level of inappropriate behavior, not at the level that Daisy experiences with Zev necessarily, but I... 
Aurad of Daisy. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, Isabel. I'm getting them confused. I'm getting, I'm getting you confused with your character. But but that, that it'd be hard to find a woman who has not tolerated some level of inappropriate behavior. Do you do you think that is something that we outgrow? Um, I believe that getting to midlife makes us more solidly ourselves. We do not put up with this kind of you know horseshit any longer. What is your take? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that. Um, you know, me specifically as a writer, I have to take up, I take a very long time to process things. So I'm the kind of person who comes up with like the perfect comeback, like three days after something has taken place. (laughs) Or I realize like a week later, like, wow, that person actually insulted me. You know, I'm sort of slow on the uptake there. But, um, but, you know, that scene that you're talking about where she has this confrontation with Zeb and he asks her that, that was probably the hardest scene in the book for me to write by far. And um, and I've been talking, you know, I talked to book groups and things like that where they're like, wow, I really wish she had just told him off or really just said, you know, said what she meant. And I'm like, so do I. I wish she had also. But my experience has been that you don't always, you don't really rise to the occasion in those moments. It's like this fuzziness of, of youth, really. I think it's, it's being, I don't know what it's like for men. I'll let men tell their story, but I think for young women, it is very, very hard when you are being challenged or confronted in that way or at work in a, in a professional situation for sure. And certainly, um, you know, I don't know what it's like now for young women coming up, but, you know, for you and I coming up, we were going through a lot of male gatekeepers. That's, you know, that's the professor who would write your recommendation, you know, or the boss you would have would be, you know, more often than not a man. And I think I wanted to capture that feeling of, you know, when she's with the professor, Professor Connolly, which becomes sort of the, the you know, the love affair of the book, um, that feeling that I think many women have had of being behind a closed door with a man um, and something kind of shifts in the room, something shifts in the air. And you're like, Oh, okay. That was weird. And, you know, most of the time, you know, I've gotten myself out of those situations. I've, I've sort of recognized them for what they are. And I've, I've sort of, you know, put on my life preserver and gotten out of them. But this was a time where I wanted to just sort of push it like, okay, well, what if you did take the lead or what if you did cross that line? What would happen? Um, Because that's what you have to do in fiction, you know, is you have to have your character make mistakes. Um, And I had to have Isabel make a lot of mistakes that I maybe didn't make, wouldn't have made. Um, But but part of that, you know, you were alluding at to um, Isabel's otherness. You know, she's a Jewish student on a not very Jewish campus. Um, she's from a lower socioeconomic background. Um, she's lost her mother. Um, and, and some, some readers have said to me, oh, I don't think any of this would have happened if Isabel's mom was still alive. You know, if she'd been able to call her mom, you know, her mom would have been like, uh, you're not going to do that. But, you know, she's so That's a lot of pressure on moms, by the way, not for nothing. (laughs) Okay, it's true. It's true. Um, That's true. But I did have to isolate her in these ways because, you know, to make her vulnerable to, um, to, you know, this kind of relationship. Yeah, it's interesting because when when you said um, readers said that this wouldn't be happening if it was her mother, I was I was of course joking, but sometimes I think that people, women who make very uh, unfortunate uh, choices in their romantic life, and I'm not saying that Isabel was making a choice necessarily, but in my experience, have been people who have strange relationships with their dads. 
um, you know, where they're where they're perhaps looking for, um, you know, just sort of um, a male to to the male love, the, the adoration, the gaze that they might be missing in their own personal lives. And and Isabel has such a uh, beautiful relationship with her father in many ways. I mean, there, there are challenges to it. I don't want to give them away. They There's a secret between them as well that gets revealed at the end of the book. But for the most part, he is, you know, endlessly supportive. And um, did, did, your, did you give any consideration to that when you were creating the father character? Yeah, I mean, he just her dad is named Abe and he owns um a store on the Lower East Side, um an appetizing store which is a kind of Jewish specialty food store. They sell smoked salmon and fish and cream cheeses and things like that. Um so you guys can look up appetizing store. Um that's the kind of store he owns. And he kind of just came to me as a a generally benign figure. Um you know, I I I I did problematize him, you know, as you said there is a secret, he's a flawed person. He can't quite give her Isabel what she needs. I don't think he even knows what it is that she needs, but I think he's aware of not being able to give her what she needs. You know, I think he is aware of his limitations. Um so she does have this support in him. But it's, you know, it's not the kind of relationship where, you know, she would get on the phone with him every day, you know, to tell him her problems. And I also think that's a little bit what it was like in the 90s. We maybe didn't call our parents like every single minute, you know, like maybe our kids are calling us. (laughs) Um, You know, we just didn't have I certainly didn't have, you know, if I wanted to call my mom, I'd have to go to the, the pay phone and use my calling card and call her at the office and you know what I mean? It was like, yes, there there was, there was a lot more distance. Even if you were close to your parents, there was a lot more physical distance because you weren't, you know, um, FaceTiming them and giving them tours of your dorm room or, you know, walking across campus with them in your pocket. And, you know, I I hear you. I went to college in the 90s, too. I remember. I remember pay phones. <laughs> Daisy, you and I are generation. A lot of time in the phone booth. Yeah, right. We're, gen- we're generation pay phone. I get it. Um, I want to ask you about something that you write in one of your final chapters. Uh, Isabel's lover, who you've, we've, you've shared as Professor Connolly, uh, is reading one of her stories. And he asked her about a specific line. And, at, you know, the she was 17 when she was writing, or the character was 17. And she says that uh, she and her friends are girls in the bodies of women. And he, this sort of catches his attention. And he asks her, is this how you see yourself as a girl in the body of a woman? And this question triggers Isabel in this part of the book to think more deeply about the concept of womanhood, you know, adulthood. And she concludes, and I wrote it down, quote, I always thought there would be boundaries or milestones, something to mark the transition. But I was beginning to think the process wasn't binary and like consent existed somewhere along a vast continuum. The lines were only there until you crossed them. I love this. Um, how do you how do you define like womanhood, adulthood? Like, have you crossed that line for yourself? Do you feel like we ever, quote unquote, arrive? Are we always fully like? Is the line moving? Do we, you know, are we ever fully grown? Um, I think I've crossed the line. I think I am like fully adult, but it's a it's a, a really fascinating thing to think about because. You know, I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine who's 64 and I'm like, wow, that is another transition. Like I, 
I can see how that will be different and I will be thinking about things differently and looking at the world from a different vantage point. Um, but, you know, the book, as you said at the beginning, is a coming of age story and coming of age is really about a loss of innocence. And I think that in a way, adulthood or that that threshold, and, and I placed the book very specifically in her final semester of college because I wanted to talk about that period of time um, really specifically because I don't think we talk about it enough. You know, we talk a lot about uh, going to college, like when our kids go to college, we talk about them leaving the nest. But I, I mean, I think I think you have kids in college. I mean, they're not really leaving the nest. I mean, they're still in the nest. They don't live here anymore, but they're still very much in my nest. Um, but I think that moment of like moving out of college and out into the world for me was very fraught. I didn't feel ready for it. I didn't feel prepared. Um, and I really struggled through my twenties to kind of, you know, get my, get my bearings. Um, and I think that that's what I'm trying to get at in the book that Isabel is really looking for answers. She's looking to the adults around her to see, oh, do they have this information that I will also get? And that will make me an adult. When is that information going to be downloaded to me? And of course we know it it's never really downloaded or it's downloaded in fits and starts and all at different times. And maybe it's the first time you see your parents cry or they fail you in some way. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of messy and she's looking at the adults and, you know, without giving too much away, the adults around her are all falling apart. And maybe that's what she learns in this, you know, this final semester that to be an adult is to, in many ways, you know, fall apart in, in different ways and at different times. Right. That you, you, when you're younger, you're thinking, oh my gosh, like they all have it together. Like, when am I going to get it together? And you, you, you get older and you realize that that's a continuous work in progress. So you said that you, you know, through your forties, you're now 50, that you do feel like fully an adult. Like what, what roots you in adulthood? I'm just curious. What, what makes you feel like you've arrived in that 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 moment of time where I mean I feel like I, I feel the same way too I'm just curious to hear what your what your response is yeah I mean I think you know just the, the, what comes to mind just at this moment is being able to look up to you know um like my the generation above us my you know my my father you know in-laws aunts uncles like that whole generation being able to see them in some way and have an understanding of what I don't know, to understand them better. And then also, of course, look at my children who are like coming up and becoming adults too and being able to understand them. It's like, I I really, I mean, they we use that term sandwich generation too much, but it's it's more like I my heart is in both places. I can I can sort of place myself, you know, in my 85-year-old father and my 20-year-old son. You know, I'm like both. Right. It's such, I think it's such a delicious phase because I mean, yeah. for me personally, like, both of my parents are still alive, which I just, I treasure. And I know that's not going to always be the case. And my kids are delightful. Like they're finally sleeping through the night. <laughs> they're, they're sleeping most of the day. Sleeping most of the day. In fact, you know, when you're young, like, you're, I wish they would sleep through the night. Then you're like, I wish they would get out of bed. It's noon. My son texted me today at like 1245. He's like, Ian and I are getting breakfast. I'm like, breakfast? I've already like, I'm on to like, different time zones. We're on different time zones. I mean, it's like so hilarious. But 
you know, I mean, like, I, I don't feel like they're, they're we're not fully done. I still, you know, one of my um, kids is out of college, one is still in college, and one is in high school. And my yeah. daughter, who graduated um, after six months living in Australia, researching dolphins, is back with a, um, a wildlife conservation job in New York, but she's living at home because saving saving the world doesn't pay very well. So, um, you know, we I, I, I do still feel like a full-time parent. Which is yeah. which is great. I you know I love it. So I feel like I'm in that zone where I still have, um, as you shared, your your like you've got your toes in both worlds. You still have parents. You still have kids. And and you're. I feel like I've evolved to be feeling very solid. One of my wonderful guests, and I'm forgetting who it was, came on who talked about getting to midlife made her feel integrated. Oh, I know who it was. It was Laura Cathcart Robbins who wrote a book about her addiction called Stash. It's a phenomenal memoir. And she talked about the fact that when she was younger, she felt like she was pretending to be different types of people. And yeah. as she got rid of her addiction to pills and as she did a lot of hard work in therapy, she began to feel fully integrated and fully herself. And I just love that because I remember being the Katie that used to go to work when I was, you know, in my early job, like pretending to be corporate Katie, you know, and then like Katie with my friends and like Katie with my parent, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm like just Katie. Like I get to be fully myself and I don't feel like I have to, um, I don't know, there's just less pretense. What do you think, Daisy? I mean, I think that's, I think integrated is a fabulous way to put it because yeah, it's like, I can even think back on t- in my 30s even where I was I still didn't know who I was and I was like oh I'm bad at that and I'm bad at that and I was just sort of always focused on the things I was bad at and trying to improve them and now that I'm you know 50 it's like oh I'm bad at those things and who cares I'm going to focus on the things I am good at which is pretty much like one or two things and I'm just going <laughs> to just do them really well you know it's like I'm not going to like invite you over for a dinner party and like you know, help you decorate your living room. You know, those are things I am not good at, but you know, <laughs> I can tell you, you know, what to read or what was, you know, in the front page of the New York Times today or whatever it is, these weird things that I'm interested in. Right. We, we focus on what lights us up and, and you're very good at novel writing. I, I so enjoyed this book. I, I'm not kidding. I, I, I read constantly and I've been reading my whole life. I used to commute in New York City, walking around with a book in my hand. I used to get stopped by strangers like, that's a dangerous way to cross the street. And I've read a million books and this one is very special. I, I'm so thank delighted you, you so brought much. it out into the world. We're heading into our speed round, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for being on the show. And I really, for my listeners who love books as much as I do, I, I definitely want to recommend My Last Innocent Year. And then let me know what you think. DM me or message me or you know, share your reactions to the book. All right, uh, Daisy, this is our speed round. This is just how we close with a quick kind of high energy. And it's just one to two word answers to some questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's do it. What was it like to see my last innocent year on a bookstore bookshelf? Thrilling. I bet. Uh, Okay, are you computer or old school analog writing by hand? I do both, but I love to write by hand. Nice. Okay. I can't write by hand because my handwriting is so bad. Um, Was this book a a solo endeavor or did you wind up workshopping it in a writer's group? I guess the the question really is like, did you work alone or did you get feedback from other fellow writers? I got feedback from fellow writers, but I was pretty careful about who I asked. 
and once I got that feedback, I kind of went off on my own. Smart. Okay, here's another one. Isabel Rosen feels so real. Who is another writer or what's another book that gets women's voices right? Sally Rooney. Nice. Okay. What's on the top of your to be read stack? On the top right now is Jessica Knowles' Bright Young Women. Ooh, I want to read that too. Okay. Your book has gotten some really amazing coverage, uh, got a great review from the New York Times. Your book tour took you to places like my favorite favorite indie bookshop from my DC days, politics and prose. What's been a surprising or cool thing about debuting a book? You know, being in the New York Times, I have to say, was a dream. I bet. Uh, the paperback version of my last innocent year is arriving any minute now. What has surprised you most about publishing a book between the launch of that hardcover and this new arrival of the paperback? How many people read it and have reached out to me about it? I love it. That's so cool. I love hearing from listeners, too. I, I totally get it. It's so nice. Sometimes you just feel like... You spend all this time creating something, and when somebody takes the time to share that they love and appreciate it, it, it does feel super cool. All right. Sure does. Finally, your one-word answer to complete the sentence. As I age, I feel... Confident. Nice. Daisy, this was so fun. I love connecting with authors. I really appreciate your finding the time. Before we say goodbye, though, how can our listeners keep following you, your work, and learn more about your writing? I am... Mostly on Instagram. So you can find me on Instagram at Daisy Florin. And you can also go to my website, daisyflorin.com, and sign up for my Substack, which I send out from time to time. And it's called Girls with Feelings. Nice. Okay, phenomenal. I'll put those all in the show notes. Thank you so much, Daisy. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women who are aging without apology. I have exciting news. We have almost 200 Apple podcast reviews. Can you help me hit that number? Did you learn something on today's show? Do you feel seen, supported, excited? Was it fun? If so, please take five minutes to write a short review of the show over on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties. Beauties.